Hello. If you're hearing my voice right now, then you have stumbled onto the podcast where real stories of professional criminal profilers are told by professional assholes. Welcome to Profiling Pain. Hey guys, welcome back to Profiling Pain. This is the official second episode, and uh, Chiron is in the studio once again. So go ahead and go. What's up? All right, so we have me, Chris Payne, your host. Let's go around the circle. I mean, Fuego here. And I'm Matthew Higgins. All right, so on this one, we're going to actually cover the profiler, but we're going to get into that in a second. Right now, I want to cover current events. Now, we have no political affiliation that we're going to talk about. We're not going to discuss religion or anything else like that. This is a safe place. I'm a registered independent. But what we are going to talk about are a couple assholes that made the news recently, and one of them is actually uh, very, very close to the case we were just talking about. So I'm going to go ahead and start it off. Uh, so in recent news, Caesar Syok, former pizza delivery guy and a male stripper, sent bombs by mail to Democrats and received or, and, and perceived uh, anti-Trumpers alike. So his people he sent bombs to covered everywhere from Hillary Clinton to uh, the restaurant of uh, one Robert De Niro. So uh, he sealed the, he sealed all these packages with scotch tape, so his fingerprints stuck to it. took absolutely no time at all for forensic science to pick it up. They dragged him in. Uh, no Metesky, no long-term, you know, lasting bomb spree, but definitely an asshole all on his own. So anybody got a profile they want to throw out on this guy, something quick? What's he a stripper guy? Day? Shows you what kind of stripper he was. Right. Shows you how much money he made. I would imagine he probably wasn't eating too much of the pizza if he was a male stripper. Right, yeah. <laughs> Carbs are the enemy. But did he dance up the driveway? Did he ever, did he ever have to strip as the pizza boy? Ooh. Did he ever have the pizza? He's invited inside. All those pornos. I don't like that. I like that. Sausage. <laughs> Double sausage. Uh, uh, all right. No, this guy is definitely just somebody who had nothing else to do with their time. He danced. He delivered pizza. He's obviously got some high aspirations yeah. for his existence he if he's doing like this he kind of thing. I mean, do you think maybe he's somebody else who found um, almost like kindred spirits in the movement that's been going, per se? You know what I mean? I'm just saying, like, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a stripper, make the money. I like that. All right. Something stoked the coals, though, obviously. And I know that there's a lot of a lot of political and social unrest right yeah. now, you know, on, on both sides of, of the of the spectrum and stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't know. The, the blue is pissed off about this and current presidency. And I, I feel like the red has, uh, I don't know, they've been enabled a little bit more okay. with such a brash president like we have right now. So I, I feel like extremism is going up on the So you sides. think it's somebody seeking validation and this is how they decided to go across it maybe? Possibly. He also just, you know, wanted to stir the shit and create a spectacle and stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm, I didn't read too much about this story. I saw it in the headlines, but uh, yeah, not not everybody on the right side is evil as hell, and not everybody on the blue side is super virtuous right. or whatever. And so that's why I mean, people are people at the end of the day. We're all separate shades of gray and stuff like right. that. But obviously, people like this guy. They give a bad reputation and they feed a stereotype. Right. This guy probably voted Nader. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So our assessment of this guy is he's so he was apprehended. Yeah. So he's a. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and do a, a call back to the last episode. He's just a publicity seeking jerk then. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, so, so nothing went off. No, nothing. Nothing exploded at all. No. 
Whereas it wasn't intended to. I, I did he really know what he was I, doing? I think I, I think read I somewhere. I didn't. I didn't dive too deeply. I just wanted to do a quick outline. What was the capacity of the bomb? I, honestly, yeah. 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 You got chlorine. You got batteries. And unfortunately, I mean, you have all of the information yeah. to learn how to do it on the internet. I can make mustard gas in my toilet. You can make mustard gas on accident with the wrong cleaning products. All right. Well, I love mustard. I love all kinds of mustard. Oh man, give me some honey mustard. Give me some spicy brown. Give me. Some. Don't worry, you'll get some spicy brown. I knew where you were going with that. Okay, I All right. want no spicy brown from you, bro. All right, so, so the second <laughs> asshole is Robert Bowers. He's the guy that actually opened fire, killing 11 people in a Pittsburgh synagogue recently. Uh, I mean, our hearts go out to the families for sure. Um, right now, he's currently standing trial in federal court for a 44-count indictment, and he faces the death penalty. So, he was described by Pittsburgh as their darkest day. Yeah, um, he, uh, <laughs> I guess a lot of his... Well, it's a federal case now. I don't think it's specific. Oh, oh, yeah, shit. yeah, it's federal. So, um, the one, the one thing about this caliber is totally. Yeah. So there's there's actually a website similar to Twitter. I think it's called. I want to say it's called Gab. I think it's what it's called. What it is is essentially Twitter with absolutely no like. Yeah, exactly. So, and from what I understand, there's a lot of hate rhetoric, a lot of hate speech, and everything else on that. And he, uh, I think he was a constant user. And I, one of his last uh, gabs. Banned on Twitter all the time. Yeah, exactly. Doing sensitive, controversial content. Yeah. So I think he was there with a bunch of tiki torch holders, and he happened to say something along the lines of like. I'm just saying. I think he said, uh, "I know what has to be done, and I'm going to go do that now." Something along those lines for his last little gab tweet, Twitter thing. Right. So my 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 assessment of this guy. Uh, I don't know. I didn't do that much diving into it. Like I said, I just did like kind of the skeleton view of it all. Um, but I, if you knew how much research I put into this other shit. But uh, uh, my assessment of this guy personally is I think he was a constant Alex Jones watcher. I think he definitely had a subscription to Infowars, and I think that maybe yeah, I think that maybe he was definitely like you know right wing is I honest truth. I think he well not particularly right wing. Sort of extreme. Yeah, does not fit in with anything. And honestly, I mean, it's 20 fucking 18. I think anything anti-Semitic needs to go out the fucking window. That's right. All right. So that being said, we're gonna cut into our second episode. We're gonna cover our our main person, the investigation. All right. So this is he was dubbed the Sherlock Holmes of Greenwich Village. We're talking about James A. Brussel here. All right. So throughout the investigation. Uh, the prevailing theory was that the bomber was a former Con Ed employee who had a grudge against the company. So they started, they started reviewing Con Ed's employee records, which gave them hundreds of leads. There were also fake tips and crank letters uh, they were looking into. I said tips. Just the tip. Uh, the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Bob had bitch tits. So detectives, detectives, uh, meatloaf. Detectives were scattered all throughout the city, uh, checking lawsuit records, mental hospital admissions, and even vocational schools that might actually have bomb part making materials or even you know classes teaching certain things. They didn't have Google, man. The worst part is, is that people were actually turning in their neighbors right and left. Uh, anyone who was acting strange or seemed like they may have too much knowledge about bombs. Bob, I told you about the goddamn hedge 
Get the oleanders, Cliff. So, so during the ongoing investigation uh, is when the actual first bomb investigation unit was formed, working on nothing but bomb leads. So that was kind of the actual orientation of when it all started. So anyway, in April of 1956, the NYPD put out a multi-state alert for uh, a person who was a skilled mechanic with access to a drill press or a lathe. Now, I've worked with lathe. A lathe is just a pipe threading tool. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's all it is. It's just a fancy word for it. was a fantastical creature. Right. But with an L. So you might be doing the, the Asian translation. You learn something new every day. So anyway, <laughs> this guy posted mail from White Plains, was over 40, and had a deep stated hatred of the Consolidated Edison Company. They distributed warning pictures of what the bombs looked like. Um, they also passed out samples of his handwriting. That way, if anybody recognized it, they could notify the authorities. Dan, how bad has you got to be back then to look at someone's curse and be like, yep, that's Jeremy. Like, what the fuck? Nonetheless, you never know where a lead's going to come from, man. And with so much information to sort through, like they obviously had for this case, I mean. In 20 years, if I became a serial killer and broke everything in cursive, I'd get away from it. I would totally be off scot free. So, so in, 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 White in White Plains specifically, specifically all right, right, they reviewed they over 500, 500 driver's license applications, applications that all had similarities, similarities in their handwriting, handwriting uh, to uh, the bombers and all the notes found in the house. So, that's so they sent... So they sent over 500 applications to NYPD to sort through. Now, December 2nd, Stephen P. Kennedy, all right, so after ordering the, what we d talked about last time, uh, calling the bombers' activities an outrage and cannot be tolerated, the one that said this is going to be the largest manhunt in city's history, he also went ahead and said that he promised whoever arrested the bomber an immediate good promotion. So now he's throwing money. They're trying to throw money at it to get anybody back. That's right. I mean, it, you could be a, a, a beat walker. What if I worked at the factory? Had an incentive to be No, this was... This was no, this was specifically for the NYPD. Now, December 27th of 1956, the New York City Board of Estimates and the, uh, the Patrolmen's Beneficiary Association posted a $26,000 reward for the bomber's apprehension. Now, in today's money, $26,000, it's 240 grand in today's money. They were promising... They're promising almost a quarter mil, which probably is why so many neighbors were getting turned in. Because you gotta think, it is the 1950s, but people are probably still lost their life savings from, from just a couple of decades before in the Great Depression. Well, it's also in the midst of the Red Scare and everything. Right, so people were getting turned in for anything. Of yeah. their neighbor for just about anything. So the money, the money and everything else is actually what led to the drastic measures. The entire time Ateski was at work, copycats ran amok. So they were actually getting copycats and fake bombs. So throughout the investigation, yeah, simulated bombs and false bomb reports. Uh, they were, th I mean, thrusted the city's money and all of their resources, sending police on multiple goose chases, um, and making an already anxious, uh, you know, city all the more nervous. So around 1951, Frederick Everhart, all right, 56 years old, and a former Con Ed employee, <laughs> also with a grudge, sent a fake pipe bomb filled with sugar to the Con Ed's personal, <laughs> personal director at 4th Irving Place. <laughs> he was immediately picked up, and at his uh, arraignment <laughs> that November, uh, an assistant district attorney told the judge 
The defendant is a particular source of annoyance to the New York City police. We are firmly convinced that he is not of sound mind. He has been sending simulated bombs around the city the past few months. Hundreds of police have been called out all hours of the day and night to investigate because of his actions. Everhart was sent to Bellevue Hospital for a psychiatric examination. Yeah, he was released and his case thrown out several months after his lawyer. <laughs> That's going to be a later episode. I can't remember the name of that project, but we'll get into that later. Anyway, his lawyer argued that the package uh, contained no written threats as the law required. So apparently, yes. So apparently, if he wasn't actually threatening through a letter, then they were like, let him go. He just sent sugar. It's fine. So he got off. Getting off on a technicality like right. that. Right. Man. Plus, Plus, kudos geez. to that lawyer, right? So, so doing the job well. we're going to take a step back. Drink. All right. So October of 1951, the main waiting room at the Grand Central Terminal was uh, emptied, and 3,000 lockers were searched and emptied after receiving a bomb warning. Over 35 officers took three hours because 1,500 of the lockers were currently in use, and there was only one master key to go through all of them. All, also, the lead bomb squad investigator had to check all the contents himself. So 1,500 lockers he had to go through on his own. In lockers? I, I, I would prefer that over somebody having to go locker to locker where something could blow up in your yeah, face. Yeah, and he was the sole, sole person <laughs> accountable for it. <laughs> oh, so he didn't mean fecal matter per se. He meant actual contents. <laughs> okay. Like I said. For more like I said, go ahead and check out uh, Centartainment on YouTube for some of our webisodes we've been throwing up. Anyway, December 29th, 1956, at the height of the fake threats, a note left in a phone booth at the Grand Central Terminal said that there was a bomb in the Empire State Building. All 102 floors were searched, emptied the whole thing. Now, meanwhile, while that was going on, a 63-year-old railroad worker picked up at Grand Central as a suspect died of a heart attack while being interrogated at the East 35th Street Precinct. All right, so if you add that up right now, a lot of people died of heart attacks. Say wrongful death So, so as, it, as it stands right now, if you remember, uh, 63. But if you go back to the last episode, the, the last episode we covered scuff shoes and some minor and a couple serious injuries, but there were no deaths. Right now, the NYPD have more fatalities on their record than the... Right, now, now eventually, a couple months later, they ruled the dead man not a suspect. How much longer did it take? It was a couple was months. months. And this is before the Rodney King days. A few weeks, yeah. Yeah. Where police so, so brutality was still like super rampant. In, in, in fucking interrogation. Right. Right. And they think and this, this is the guy for at least a week, a week that set the bomb. Right. This old man who died in interrogation. Yeah, this geriatric did it all. This guy couldn't even walk down his fucking hallway without fucking collapsing. Right. They never even, I, you know, I couldn't find the actual reasons why they just thought he was a suspect. So anyway, moving on. So after fingerprint experts had and writing experts and the bomb investigation unit made little progress and the traditional police methods seemingly useless against the erratic bombing campaign, police captain John Cronin approached his friend, James A. Brussel, a criminologist, a psychologist, and an assistant commissioner to the New York State Commission for Mental Hygiene, a.k.a. a.k.a. a fucking boss. 
So quick backstory on Brussel, just so we can get his credentials, all right? So pretty much. So he was born James Arnold Brussel in New York City in 1905. Attending the University of Pennsylvania before he opened up his own psychiatric practice, he was head of the neuropsychiatry at Fort Dix in World War II. In the Korean War, he ran the department for the entire U.S. military. While doing that, he was also an active profiler uh, <laughs> in, uh, in the Center Intelligence for the FBI and the CID, which was the Army's Criminal Investigation Department. He was the first ever to have been used for criminal investigations. James A. motherfucking Brussel. He was makes you wonder if he got any of He was actually they still went to I mean just just so we can really cover the actual psychiatric background he was declared a a Freudian psychologist. You're talking like the man, you know what I'm saying? So cat no, no, wait, 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 wait. What about what? So, so Captain Cronin introduced Brussels to the Inspector Howard E. Finney, head of the NYPD's crime laboratory. Uh, in Brussels' office, alongside Finney and two other detectives, he examined the crime scene photos and letters, and he discussed the bombs, metalworking, the bombers, sorry, metalworking and electrical skills. So while taking talking with the police, Brussels developed what he called a portrait of the bomber, which now we call a profile. So the bomber's belief of being screwed by Con Ed seemed to rule his thoughts, which led Brussels to uh, the, the belief that maybe the bomber was suffering from paranoia, which he described as a chronic disorder of insidious development characterized by persistent, un <laughs> unalterable, systemized, uh, logically <laughs> constructed delusions. Like, that's a fucking mouthful, but in short, delusional paranoia. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. So... Based, Based off of off evidence, evidence and also and dealing with, dealing uh, with psycho, you know, psychopathic, psychopathic criminals on his own, he put forth a number of theories outside of just being pissed at Con Ed. So here's the, here's the profile, okay? Now, in determining this profile, he did what he called looking at the crime itself and, and working backwards. He called that reverse psychology, which we now know is not a thing. Right, which is what parents joke to get their kids to do things that they want or anything else. But he, but he coined the phrase reverse psychology with this profile. Now, this, this profile is long. It is drawn out. There's a lot of big words. But he talks so much shit from an intellectual standpoint. Like, the amount of shit talking he does right now is hilarious. So he said, male, as historically most bombers were male. Well-proportioned and of average build, based on studies of hospital mental patients. So if you were crazy back in the day, you were also a sportsman. All right, so he was 40 to 50 years of age as paranoia developed slowly. Precise, neat, tidy, based on his letters and uh, the workmanship of his bombs. An exemplary employee, on time and well-behaved. A Slav, because bombs were favored in Middle Europe. A Catholic, because most Slavs were Catholic. Courteous, but not friendly. Uh, has, a has a good education, education but probably not college. Not college. Foreign-born or living in a community of foreign-born. Now, the now formal the tone and old-fashioned old phrasing of the letters sounded to Brussels as if they had been written or thought out in a foreign language and then translated into English. 
based on the rounded letters of the W's in his handwriting was believed to represent breasts. And the slashing and stuffing of these theater seats, Brussel thought something about sex was troubling the bomber, possibly an Oedipus complex, loving his mother and hating his father and other authoritative figures. A loner, no friends, little interest in women, possibly a virgin, unmarried, perhaps living with an older female relative. Probably lives in Connecticut as Connecticut has high concentrations of Slavs and many of the bomber's letters were posted in uh, Westchester County, midway between Connecticut and New York City. He also predicted to his visitors in the room that when the bomber was caught, he would be wearing a double-breasted suit buttoned to the top. Hitting everything fast and like basically like so crazy. This entire time, I didn't realize you said Con Air and I heard Con Air and I was like, what the? Immediately, Immediately thinking Nick Cage movies. <laughs> so, even though police decided to keep the investigation low-key, Brussel convinced uh, the heavily publicized profile, thinking that any wrong assumptions would actually cause the bomber to respond. So the New York Times version was shorter and a little nicer, but got the message across nonetheless. They said, <laughs> he is a single man between 40 and 50 years old. Uh, introvert, unsocial, but not antisocial. Skilled mechanic, cunning, neat with tools. Egotistical of mechanical skill, contemptuous of other people. Uh, resentful of criticism of his work, but probably conceals resentment. Moral, honest, not interested in women. <laughs> uh, seems to be a running theme. Right. High school graduate, expert in civil or military ordinance, religious, uh, might flare up violently at work when criticized. Possible motive, discharge, or reprimand. Feels superior to critics, resentment keeps growing. Uh, present or former consolidated Edison worker, probably case of progressive paranoia. Now, the thing that bothers me real quick before Mahalo chimes in is that throughout this entire thing, he mentioned Con Ed right and left, and all the things, well, we think maybe he worked for Con Ed or he was mad at Con Ed. Well, really? <laughs> you don't say. Mahalo? We, we thought you were chiming in there. <laughs> No, <laughs> you look contemplative. You look contemplative. <laughs> not, 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 not at all. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, it's all right there. Con Ed, Con Ed, Con Ed, Con Ed, right. Con Ed, Con Ed. All signs point to Con Ed. You listen to that profile, and the scary part about that profile is it fits most male theory. True, in a lot of ways. especially in this digital age where there's so much less personal interaction and stuff like that. I mean, it's only made the situation so much worse. I mean, think about it. Terrorism is essentially just trying to keep keep others from doing what they would normally do on a regular basis. That's essentially what social media has done to most people who are cyberbullying. We call it cyberbullying, but in a sense, in itself, is terrorism. You're keeping people from doing what they would normally be doing on a regular day, in a regular basis, in a regular life, by being a cyberbully. And by doing doing that that thing just like that, that profile fits just most people today. Which means means you could be a bomber, you could be a bomber, and Oprah could be a bomber too. Wow, man. (laughs) You know, I didn't didn't actually think about that when I read that, but you're absolutely correct. That does, yeah. I think about it. That's why I'm (laughs) on. All right. All this insightfulness on your part here. Yeah. All right, so uh, newspapers so did uh, uh, publish the profile on. Actually, they published it on Christmas of 1956. Now, the day uh, after the profile two was. Two years after Godzilla was born. Nelson, remind me, how many years had he been active again by the time this was Technically, published? we're going to say 16, 15, but realistically, but, 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 but hardcore for five years. Long. Yeah. Yeah. So he did have like a 10 year layoff after the World War had happened. So two bombs. Yeah, two bombs prior to World War II didn't do shit for a decade, and 1951 hit it. 
So yeah. 30 bombs and then he throughout. Amped it back up. So, so yeah. you've been going again. 30 for, like five malfunctioning years. bombs. So like a presidential election and a Winter Olympics that time frame. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and obviously, God, you imagine the Winter Olympics back then. So the day after the profile was published, <laughs> the New York Journal American published uh, on op- an, an open letter, which for people today, an open letter in the newspaper back in the day was essentially a blog, so everybody could go ahead and talk about it. Uh, they had published alongside police urging the bomber to give himself up. They promised a fair trial. Uh, now, Brussels' plan actually worked. Metesky wrote back the next day, uh, stating he would not give himself up and uh, signing the letter FP. Now, in the letter, he revealed a wish to bring Con Ed to justice, of course. He gave his list of locations of bombs from the year and expressed concerns that not all had been discovered. So he really was worried about people getting blown up. He also said in the letter, my... Was he really? I mean, he'd been scuffing shoes for the past, like, five years. So, I mean, was he really worried someone was going to lose their Maybe it was the embarrassment. But he also... Well, I mean, once again, didn't we, we really realized in the previous episode that this guy was never about inflicting harm he was always yeah. more so yeah. about this. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. He was a guitar solo. So, wanker. Fucking wanker. Wanking off here. So, later in the letter, he also stated, My days on earth are numbered. Most of my adult life. Everyone's are. Yeah, <laughs> right? Join the club, fucker. <laughs> so, most of my adult life has been spent in bed. My one consolation is that I can strike back even from the grave for the dastardly acts against me. Fuego, we know how much you love love it. That's right. (laughs) So the police edited the letter, of course, and then let the newspaper publish it, along with another open letter on January 10th, um, asking him for more information about his grievances. So was he terminally ill or anything? Do we know? The TB. He thinks he's going down, which if, if untreated, it could be. So, Metesky's second letter provided... Yeah, but untreated back then was majority of Americans. Well, that's the thing I actually left out on the last episode. Alongside a wool sock, alongside fucking letters, alongside the watch parts, alongside the knives. He also left throat lozenges at every single uh, every single bombing site. But they had no way of screening it, so they're just like, oh, gross. But they did note that it did come from the same brand. They figured out that it was the same brand of throat lozenge, but they got nothing out of it because they didn't have DNA. So... So Metesky's second letter uh, provided details about the materials used on the bombs. Now, he's actually giving more information. The 25 caliber pistol powder was his favorite because he felt, I don't know why, but he felt that shotgun uh, gunpowder didn't have the boom he wanted. He also promised a truce in bombings until March 1st. So he's starting to feel either... So once again, he's taking the... Well, this is a pretty comparison, but... But the question is, though, did he promise a truce because now he's actually openly talking? He's like, oh, fuck, I'm giving away too much info? Or do you, do you think that he was absent-minded of that fact? Just like, they're being nice to me, and then just dialed it back. I think he was drinking, to tell you the truth. It, I'm honestly thinking maybe he realized, okay, the extent of the manhunt that they have on me, maybe if I say it's a truce and I'm going to stop doing it, maybe they'll back off right. a little bit. Right, and also, but, you know, because he's probably starting to but now, but, but if, I, don't, I don't think so. Genuine I, worry I, about getting caught I, at this I point. think he only worries about getting caught when he's not sober. Uh, you look at Metesky through everything else that he's done uh it, it's just scare tactics it's blah 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 here's this little poof well, it's little always poof that. but what happens when you start drinking you release uh you, what is it a drunken man's words or superman's thoughts he probably started drinking and then oh, sure, heard yeah. about the manhunt it was like as stupid decision as it because if i was on a manhunt i know that laying low isn't going to stop them from coming after me right the fbi's most wanted list isn't going to stop them from coming after me uh so he's probably drinking and it was a dumb decision 
But they yeah. say he's a delusional whatever, and so right. you know, from you know, I mean, so <laughs> alongside the promise to cease till March first, he also explained that he was injured at work and is uh, permanently disabled. Explaining Con Ed blocked his workman's comp case, so he had to cover his own medical bills. So at this point, he's looking for some essence of sympathy right. too. Well, he, that's that's so. Also in this letter, he explained, when a motorist injures a dog, he must report it. Not so with an injured workman. He rates less than a dog. I tried to get my story to the press. I tried hundreds of others. I typed tens of thousands of words, about 80,000, but nobody cared. I, determined to make these dastardly acts known, I have had plenty of time to think. I decided on bombs. Now, once again, letter gets edited and published, and with another open letter asking for further details and dates, it was published on January 15th, saying that they promised a fair hearing could be held about his compensation claim. So now that they know that that's what he's after, they're like, you know what? Compensation claim. Let's get you in here. So they're promising him all kinds of things. They're promising the sky and the moon at this point. All right. So his third letter was his downfall. He described the accident, describing the diagnosis. But he gave the date this time. He, Did he want to get caught I, that's, at this point? So, I mean, right. <laughs> so he gave the date of the injury, September 5th, 1931. All right. He then said that if he didn't have a family that could be branded by his acts, he would have given himself up. He thanked the Journal American for publicizing his case and said that the bombings will never be resumed. That letter wasn't published until the day after his arrest. Wow. Yeah. So he said, you know what? I'm done. They're like, yeah, you are, fucker. Yeah, because now we know who you are, and we're not going to give you any additional publicity until you're apprehended. They're probably so far enough along within the case, and they're they're probably ready to pounce at, right. at, at that point. So, you know? Immensely. Yeah. Bullshit artist. He basically made Penguin look like I have an umbrella for every occasion. But uh, Danny DeVito. Even though he was, he was a nuisance, he was a criminal. The fact, the fact that criminals can be nuisances. They can be, but I mean, does Batman really ever arrest the guy? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a petty thug kind of thing. But this dude was like, I'm going fucking Gordon. I don't see. I don't think that it's. Yeah. An old fashioned. This dude was Dick Tracy. And I mean, and we covered er, practically everything that he said in that profile in the last episode. He was spot on, insane. He was, he was arrested in the double breast. Uh, we're gonna no, get arrested. Arrest. Arrest. So now uh, Brussels is his name. Right? James A. Brussels. James A. Brussels. Now, so so Brussels was this like the most high profile case he had worked on up to this point, presumably? Um, yeah, outside of his military and FBI work. I mean, common knowledge. Yeah, this was. I mean, he actually after this went on to actually biggest thing as far as like a, a yeah. media spectacle. No, 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 no. This is his highest public profile case. You don't know what he did in the wars. After this, he went on. He went after this. He went on. After this, he went on to help find the Boston Strangler. So he upped his ante. Not Aquaman, no. 
but this raised his prominence exactly with such a publicly publicized right. case. So, so we're on. We're we're on to the secretary, guys. And no one was harmed by the testy. The FBI or the NYPD? Yes. It was a controlled blast. The, so, so the NYPD harmed more right. people so, in the interrogation process. <laughs> so Con Edison clerk Alice Kelly had been searching through old files for employees with serious health problems. On Friday, January 18th, 1957, while searching the final batch of troublesome workers, uh, compensation case files, she found the ones where threats were made. Okay, so a letter where the words were injustice, and uh, permanently disabled, Martin Red drew her suspicions. So she started comparing it to the letters in the Journal American. So these were words that had been printed in the Journal American. So putting two and two together, she decided to check the injury date, September 5th, 1931. George Metesky, an employee from 1929 to 1931, injured in a plant accident. Letters from Metesky were in the file, including with the wording in the newspaper, but the most telling was the phrase dastardly deeds. That term, yeah. Right. Mm. So police were notified before 5 p.m. that evening, but they passed it off as yet just another one of a number of leads that they were following. But they asked the Waterbury, Connecticut police to do a discreet check on Metesky at his house at 17 4th Street. So they were like, it's enough to actually go check out, so go ahead and do this. So January 21st, 1957, four NYPD detectives accompanied by Waterbury police and a search warrant arrived at Metesky's home. They asked him to produce a handwriting sample and to make a letter G. He made the G, looked up and said, I know why you fellows are here. You think I'm the mad bomber. The detective said, what does FBI or FP stand for? And Metesky responded, fair play. He then took them to the garage where they found flashlight batteries, gunpowder, a lathe for the pipe threading, and a pile of mismatched wool socks because he liked stuffing all that pipe in the wool socks. He kept the pile of mismatched. I think the wool socks yeah, were the dead giveaway. So they asked him to go upstairs and change. The wool socks the dead giveaway. So check this out. They asked him to go upstairs and change out of his pajamas, and he came back down wearing a double-breasted suit buttoned to the top. Wow, Brussels. Do you know why? Called it. Because Brussels knew that this man wanted to be seen. Now, for Miss Kelly, the secretary. Yeah, good call, actually. Yeah. He's, he's going to go Fashion. out looking Fashion. sharp as Oh, you look at the arrest he's pictures? Like they are he's all gonna smiling. Take photos of me. He's got a shit-eating yeah. grin. That's, that's what most of these people who have issues with they want attention. employees. They, they want to be heard. They want to be seen. They feel like their voice hasn't been right. heard. Right. Hasn't been seen. So they result, result to these semi-extreme... And the depth of his intent is obvious based on how long this vendetta went on for over 20 years, yep. 20, about 26 to 31 to 57. Yeah, so. Amazon employee going off. I'm delivering the wrong packages to the wrong people. You're giving the no and you're giving the semi let me know. So, as for the secretary, Miss Kelly, please took <laughs> please took credit for the fine, but still offered her the reward money, which. Con Ed decided she was just merely doing her job. So Con Ed decide, decided to negate the reward money. You mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. so she got screwed. <laughs> Consolidated Edison. John Cusack. So Dave Chappelle being rained. So Brussel, after this, Brussel went on to profile many more cases, uh, even the Boston Strangler. Um over the and years, are we going to be doing an episode about the Boston Strangler? I might. I might later on after we get a little bit longer. Are you further away from the phone? Yeah, I know, right? I know. So, uh, and we're both uh, 
Patriots fans. Right, yeah. Um, throughout throughout the years, Brussels would actually go and visit Metesky, and they would have conversations and everything else. And uh, Metesky would sit down and have palaver. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brussels ended up writing a book over the twenty like high-profile cases that he solved. It's a badass book. Uh, seventy-five dollars actually on Amazon right now. But um, Metesky, Metesky told him, I do, I do. <laughs> Christmas present. But uh, Metesky told him point blank. He goes, I never intended to injure anybody. That's why they were such a small blast. So he knew that he wasn't gonna hurt anybody. All right. So after Metesky's arrest, he ended up at the uh, at the Matawa Hospital for the criminally insane after being declared legally insane and having paranoid schizophrenia. But the court psychiatric experts, uh, he received, oh, sorry, by the court psychiatric experts, but he received a year and a half of treatment for his tuberculosis, which ended up actually curing him and helping him out. So even though Con Ed fucked him, his incarceration is what healed him. So, I mean. Saved his life. Yeah, so light at the end of the tunnel, I guess. Uh, Honestly, just you talking about Brussels coming to visit him and stuff like that. Back to the Hello, Batman Clarice. That's what I was thinking. Well, that yeah. or like you know, Batman coming to visit the Joker in Arkham, and I mean, or even in some of the Halloween movies with Loomis coming to visit Michael. I mean, hey, you, you go back to what he just said. Hello, Clarice. I mean, the reason why she was able to catch that killer, right? Mm-hmm. Because she knew that this man had that mind. And not just that. that that's the great thing about this profiling. I mean, if this, if this is just someone's profile, we haven't gotten into people who would coin the term serial. Right. I mean, these wow. people, these are people who are able to step into the mind of someone so deranged, so. You have to have. And a, that's you have to have kind of a darkness within yourself to right. be able to wade through a serious. Dude, you got to have something waiting. I mean, it's I thick skin, man, and. Are just a line away from becoming the next. Oh, that's another topic I want to touch on later. Is that there's actually cases like you, you know the show Dexter. There's actually cases on file of cops becoming serial killers themselves. If you're anybody a comic book fan, doesn't that happen on Dexter? Yeah. Literally, how close is Batman every single day of his life to becoming Ra's al Ghul? Right. Well, he's on the verge of. Day. He, yeah. he's, every day he struggles with snapping this guy's neck or arresting So the next well, episode... I mean, killing joke, the creation of the Joker, one bad day. Yeah, the next, one, one bad day. The, the next same episode, we're going to try to talk more about Marvel for the Marvel fans because we covered a lot of fucking DC. <laughs> we're just talking about DC because they got nothing else. <laughs> All right, so anyway, this Batman is the crazy part, guys. Metesky <laughs> was actually released in 1973, stating that since there was actually no jury present during his conviction... Um, he, they didn't go along with what they were supposed to do. But what they tried to do prior to that was actually transfer him to Creedmoor Psychiatric Center. There, the doctors determined that he was harmless. And on December 13th of 1973, he was let back out into the world. The only condition of his release was that he regularly visits uh, the Connecticut Department of Mental Hygiene Clinic near his own house. He was, he was interviewed upon his release. <laughs> he was interviewed upon his release and apologized for the bombings, but pretty much said, fuck Con Ed. So he was, sti- <laughs> of course he was, he did. He was still on the It's still, yeah. the hatred yeah. is still there. No. He's like, I, I just <laughs> lost, I lost 16 years of my life just now. It's like, it's like Ripley getting right. interviewed and being like, now, now I don't know if it's a happy ending or not, but he died at the age of 90 after thinking he would die in his 30s in his own home. I mean, he didn't kill anybody, so I mean, right. that is a happy ending. He probably died watching some now, Browns or Broncos football game or Patriots losing another. Here's he experienced some injustice, but obviously he took his his. Repercussions right. and right. retaliation far further than he yeah, should right. have. And so he was obviously 
there's some mental instability. So now here. the craziest thing that I found throughout this case wasn't the bombs, wasn't the wasn't the the, the mimics, wasn't even the profiling, which was very fascinating. Mimic, good movie. But the craziest thing that I found, the craziest thing that I found was that once they pieced together the whole Con Ed thing for over two years, Con Ed denied the police access to their files, saying that they had already gotten rid of their files from the 1930s. They didn't hold on to any of that. Now we know that that's not true because the secretary found it. Now I don't know why they did so. This company was shady. That's what I'm saying. So I'm not I'm not sure exactly why they did that. But for two years. Do you know, do you know what Con Ed's dealings actually were? Uh, no, they were just a utility company. I didn't really dive too much into them. That might be on the next thing. If you want to dive into some conspiracy theory shit, if you want to hear that, let us know. Because I definitely love conspiracy theory. I wouldn't mind having like the next episode be that and then cover our next case. But for right now, what I can gather was maybe embarrassment that they were the cause of this. Um, also, maybe it was the fact that they thought that maybe they would be held accountable and they didn't want to get charged. Or maybe there was actual evidence of them purposely screwing their employees and doing something shady like you just mentioned. Or it was just the sheer lack of knowledge of what they actually had on file and didn't want to put... Right, they could have very well. It's maybe a combination of a lot of these things. Right, it's mad, mad men days, yeah. How many times do you can't even ask a man for directions at that point in time because he's going to tell you the right direction? I mean, we've grown to. I've gotten lost that way. Into a certain kind of person that we are now, but I mean, the 1950s was all about masculinity, being the man, knowing the direction, knowing the rules, knowing how everything works. I have the tables have turned. Yeah. CEO of a major utility company who probably didn't, probably didn't actually have any information on you to begin with. You have a, you have a little uh, uh, community people, uh, news people want to talk to you. First thing they say is no. You're going to deny, 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 deny. And not just simply because you're a man, but simply because you want public image. Yeah, saving face. Where's Con Ed now? Gone. Gone. Did he kill the Con Ed? Did Did he kill the Con Ed? They landed. Steve Buscemi got away. Kill the Fed. That's a con. That's a conspiracy theory. Buscemi's character getting away in Con Air. We keep going. That would be a great fucking movie. He's gambling at the end. I remember. Steve Buscemi on this motherfucker. Steve Buscemi in anything. Steve, if you're listening. We need you to Buscemi your ass over here. So Steve Buscemi, Will Arnett is we're talking to right now. All right, yeah. so that actually wraps up the second episode. Um, the next one, the next actual case we're going to cover is going to be Richard Chase, uh, the vampire of Sacramento. Dude, just so you guys know, Dick Chase. <laughs> Richard is a dick. So, Dick Chase. So we put up a webisode on our Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Cameron Band AZ. You can find us at Central Entertainment on YouTube. Um, we're gonna be doing webisodes monthly, so if you like that, definitely subscribe, like, share, all that, all that jazz. Uh, it's gonna be alongside the profiling pain episodes on YouTube. You can also find it soon on Spreaker, Spotify. I mean, anything that you listen to podcasts on. Big, big, big thank you to Age of Radio for picking up the show already. They're gonna be doing me a solid. So we're gonna be, yeah, Jeremy and Danielle Quintatori, as they call themselves. So that's at the top. That's right. So thank you guys very much. Uh, that's Jeremy Quintanilla and, and Daniel Alatori slash Quintanilla. So thank you guys very much for that. Um, Back to the yeah. So that's it, man. That's that's uh, that's episode two. The next episode, the Vampire Sacramento. Uh, as we as we aka Batman versus Morbius. So we are a band. So to put that into a musical reference, we're gonna be taking that one. Uh, we're gonna crank that to eleven. It's gonna be bloody. It's gonna be gory. It's gonna be some. Uh, Hopefully some stomach-turning shit if we do it right. So, 
Uh, I'm looking forward to the research, but I'm not. This guy drank real people. Yeah, blood. and I don't know who I'm gonna be at the end of this, so we'll see. I think this guy came early too, and he inspired a lot of. Oh, we're gonna spend. We're gonna spend a lot of time in the 1970s. So strap on, motherfucker. Weird ass times. Yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah, it's. Uh, you said I could cut, so I'm gonna start fucking guzzling. Yeah, free so, love. So and it carried on. I counted four. Was that four fucks? That, that was four? How much fucking did that Wilt Chamberlain do all them father childrens he's got all of them? <laughs> I mean, technically, it's all the hunters sired, like, you know, was it 35% of the fucking Asian population he left? The 1970s. Stainer, the profiler, profound, amazing. All right, so this is a badass. He is Chris's hero. That's Wait, right. he's not. He's not. Russell, not Russell your is hero. like he's Batman not before Batman. He's like Arkham Knight. So for music, for uh, anything video, anything of us, you can check out Centartainment on YouTube. You can go to our Facebook.com forward slash Karen Band AZ. I am Omega. Reverb Nation. That's right. Uh, we have a SoundCloud floating around. I don't know how uh, active that is. Um, That's about to go to is ReverbNation.com slash Chiron Band AZ. There you go. And then uh, Fuego. Fuego is Jaime and Fuego on all the socials. Yep, all the social media sectors, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's spelled like Jamie, but it's technically Spanish. So J-A-I-M-E-E-N-F-U-E-G-O. I mean, you can Fuego, find them. You'll find pretty much everything I'm doing. Constant that's uh, right. coverage of the hottest entertainment with an edge. I have in Fuego Tainment relaunching on YouTube, and that's spelled just the same as my name. So YouTube.com slash. 11-11-2018. Look for that release. Uh, I am. Yeah, so I think this will be going up. Yeah. So before or before or after? Uh, yeah, this one will be after. We're gonna launch the first episode uh, probably tonight, and then after that. Oh no, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, it'll be up. Anyway, uh, so without further ado, man, uh, you can find me at Omega Twiz five one five zero on uh, on Instagram. Mahalo is gonna be Michael Onak on whatever socials you decide to find him at. And then uh, you can also email us. And delivering pizza. <laughs> you can also email us at uh, Centartainment at Gmail. But uh, without further ado, man, you guys have been amazing. This has been Profiling Pain. Stay metal, mofos. Until the next time. Sprawling. Right.